Wealth Attraction Research. Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. War. Accumulation. Wealth Attraction Research. War. W-A-R. Accumulation. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, Accumulation, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokis Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Colin, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, published in 1776. This is chapter three of book two. I don't know what I put in on Spreaker. Uh, And it's titled, Of the Accumulation of Capital or of Productive and Unproductive Labor. I just, I'm doing an experiment here because this is the first time that I'm recording on all three at the same time. So I'm live on Spreaker, Colin, and Wisdom. Usually I take the Wisdom talks and then download them and put them onto Spreaker later. But this is a live test with all three at the same time using a ceremonic microphone uh, hooked into the iPhone 14 Pro, then the Tascam DR05X is being used as the audio interface for the Spreaker Studio. And then I've got the JLab GoBuds, JLab GoWork GoBuds going into the Android device. So we'll see what all of this, what, what happens here, what's made of it. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly for uh, Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, of the accumulation of capital or of productive and unproductive labor. So I can check my sound on all three of these platforms and see what what comes of it. So this should be interesting. I'm in the middle of a Barnes and Noble at, um, in the town center in Virginia Beach. It is right now, uh, 1,400 hours and 38 minutes. That's 2.38 Eastern Standard Time or Eastern Daylight Time. And let's get at it. So Adam Smith starts in this chapter three of book two. There is one sort of labor which adds to the value of the subject upon which it is bestowed. There is another which has no such effect. The former... That's the labor which adds value to the subject upon which it is bestowed, right? The former, as it produces value, may be called productive, the latter, unproductive labor. Thus, the labor of a manufacturer adds generally to the value of the materials which he works upon, that of his own maintenance and of his master's profit. The labor of a menial servant on the contrary, adds to the value of nothing. Though the manufacturer has his wages 
advanced to him by his master, he, in reality, costs him no expense, the value of those wages being generally restored together with a profit in the improved value of the subject upon which his labor is bestowed. But the maintenance of a menial servant never is restored. A man grows rich by employing a multitude of manufacturers. He grows poor by maintaining a multitude of menial servants. Hmm, that's interesting. He says that uh, a man grows rich by employing a multitude of manufacturers. That's interesting. I wonder what the book, The Science of Getting Rich, Wallace D. Waddles, that Chase Allen and I are reading for the literally, literally rich podcast that hasn't been released yet except for like a tiny pilot that I put out before I consulted with him. He knows it's up, but I'm holding the other ones back until we're done. It's exclusively on Wisdom right now, so if you don't have the Wisdom app, download it, and then you can check it out um, before I publish it out on Spreaker and other platforms. So, all right, so he says, A man grows rich by employing a multitude of manufacturers. Manufacturers, he grows poor by maintaining a multitude of menial servants. I wonder how that could be applied to how people waste money on, like, luxuries, right? This, this is interesting. I'm always looking for ways to, to process it and, and cross-reference it, right? But we'll continue. The labor of the latter, however, has its value and deserves its reward as well as that of the former. But the labor of the manufacturer fixes and realizes itself in some particular subject or vendable commodity, which lasts for some time at least after that labor is passed. It is, as it were, a certain quantity of labor stocked and stored up to be employed, if necessary, upon some other occasion. That's interesting. I like the wording of that. It's, it's making me think of, of, of charging something. I mean, as charging a battery, because he's saying that um, it is, as it were, a certain quantity of labor stocked and stored up to be employed or to be used. Interesting. All right. If necessary, upon some other occasion, that that subject or what is the same thing, the price of that subject can afterwards, if necessary, put into motion a quantity of labor equal to that which had originally produced it. The labor of the menial servant, on the contrary, does not fix or realize itself in any particular subject or vendable commodity. His, service generally per his services generally perish in the very instance, in the very instant of their performance, and seldom leave any trace or value behind them. For which an equal quantity of service could afterwards be procured. The labor of some of the most respectable orders in the society, like that of menial servants, unproductive of any value, and does not fix or realize itself in any permanent subject or vendable commodity, which endures after that labor is passed, and for which an equal quantity of labor could afterwards be procured. The sovereign, for example, with all the officers both of justice and war who serve under him, 
the whole army and navy are unproductive laborers. They are the servants of the public and are maintained by a part of the annual produce of the industry of other people. Their service, however honorable, how useful, or how necessary soever, produces nothing for which an equal quantity of service can afterwards be procured. The protection, security, and defense of the commonwealth, the effect of their labor this year, will not purchase its protection, security, and defense for the year to come. In the same class must be ranked both some of the gravest and most important, some of the most frivolous professions, churchmen, lawyers, physicians, men of letters of all kinds, players, buffoons, musicians, opera singers, opera dancers, etc. The labor of the meanest of these has a certain value, regulated by the very same principles which regulate that of every sort of labor and that of the noblest and most useful, produces nothing which could afterwards purchase or procure an equal quantity of labor, like the declamation of the actor, the harangue of the orator, or the tune of the musician. The work of all of them perishes in the very instance of its production. 1776, folks, remember, I don't think there were any tape recording machines. I don't, were there records back then for like Beethoven, 1777? I have to check on that. And so, uh, and no, no video cameras, of course. So no, I don't think that, uh, yeah, they couldn't play that stuff back. I, mean, I think the older uh, vinyl players were uh, like, you had to crank them or wind them up or something like that, right? I think that was the case. All right. I think I do think that was the case. I do think that was the case. All right. Continuing, both productive and unproductive laborers and those who do not labor at all are equally maintained by the annual produce of the land and labor of the country. This produce, how great soever, can never be infinite, but must have certain limits. According, therefore, as a smaller or greater proportion of, of it is in any one year employed in maintaining unproductive hands, the more in the one case and the less in the other will remain for the productive, and the next year's produce will be greater or smaller accordingly. Makes sense. The whole annual produce, if we accept the spontaneous productions of the earth being the effect of productive labor, Though the whole annual produce of the land and labor of every country is, no doubt, ultimately destined for supplying the consumption of its inhabitants and for procuring a revenue to them, yet when it first comes either from the ground or from the hands of the productive laborers, it naturally divides itself into two parts. One of them, and frequently the largest is, in the first place, destined for replacing a capital or for, renew or for renewing the provisions, materials, and finished work which had been withdrawn from a capital, or uh, the other for constituting a revenue either to the owner of this capital as the profit of his stock or to some other person as the rent of his land. Thus, the produce of land, thus of the produce of land, one part replaces the capital of the farmer, the other pays his profit and the rent of the landlord, 
and thus constitutes a revenue both to the owner of this capital as the profits of his stock and to some other person as the rent of his land. Of the produce of a great manufactory, in the same manner, one part, and that always the largest, replaces the capital of the undertaker of the work, the other pays his profit, and thus constitutes a revenue to the owner of the capital, or of this capital. All right. That part of the annual produce of the land and labor of any country which replaces a capital never is immediately employed to maintain any but productive hands. It pays the wages of productive labor only, that which is immediately destined for constituting a revenue either as profit or as rent, may maintain indifferently either productive or unproductive hands. Whatever part of his stock a man employs as, as a capital, he always expects it to be replaced to him with a profit. Again, whatever part of his stock a man employs as a capital, he always expects it to be replaced to him with a profit. He employs it, therefore, in maintaining productive hands only, and after having served in the function of a capital to him, it constitutes a revenue to them. Whenever... or and after having served the function of a capital to him, it serve, it constitutes a revenue to them. Hmm, or should it be read like it constitutes a revenue to, the, to them? To them. What, okay, just continuing. Whenever he employs any part of it in maintaining unproductive hands of any kind, that part is from that moment withdrawn from his capital and placed in his stock reserved for immediate consumption. All right, makes sense. Unproductive laborers and those who do not labor at all are all maintained by revenue, either first by that part of the annual produce which is originally destined for constituting a revenue to some particular persons, either as the rent of the land or as the profits of the stock, or secondly, by that part which, though originally destined for replacing a capital and for maintaining productive laborers only, Yet when it comes into their hands, whatever part of it is over and above their necessary subsistence may be employed in maintaining indifferently either productive or unproductive hands. Ah, he's talking about productive and unproductive hands all the time. All right. Saying that some of them, some hands are not productive. All right. Let's see here. All right, so... Yeah, unproductive laborers, yeah. Um, and, and those who do not labor at all are all maintained by revenue, either first, by that part of the annual produce which is originally destined for constituting revenues to some particular persons, either as the rent of the land or as the profits of stock, or secondly, by that part which, though originally destined for replacing a capital and for maintaining productive, productive laborers only, Yet when it comes into their hands, whatever part of it is over and above their necessary subsistence may be employed in maintaining indifferently either productive or unproductive hands. All right, so he's talking about, you know, accumulation of capital or of productive and unproductive labor. Hmm. Saying some labor is unproductive. Uh, some of his descriptions about that are a little bit, you know, questionable what he explained earlier about servants or things like that but i'll continue to get through this 
All right, so thus, not only the great landlord or the rich merchant, but even the common workman, if his wages are considerable, may maintain a menial servant, or he may sometimes go to a play or a puppet show, and so contribute his share towards maintaining one set of unproductive laborers, or he may pay some taxes, and thus help to maintain another set, more honorable and useful indeed, but equally unproductive. No part of the annual produce, however, which had been originally destined to replace a capital is ever directed toward maintaining unproductive hands till after it has put into motion its full complement of productive labor or all that it could put into motion in the way in which it was employed. The workman must have earned his wages by work done before he can employ any part of them in this manner. That part, too, is generally but a small one. It is his spare revenue only, of which productive laborers have seldom a great deal. Yes, spare revenue only, of which productive laborers seldom have seldom a great deal. They generally have some, however, and in the payment of taxes, the greatness of their number may compensate, in some measure, the smallness of their contribution. The rent of land and the profits of stock are everywhere. Therefore, the principal, therefore, the principal land and profits of stock are everywhere. Therefore, the principal sources from which unproductive hands derive their subsistence. Therefore, the principal sources from which unproductive hands derive their sub subsistence. Subsistence. The two. Okay, these are the two sorts of revenue of which the owners have generally most to spare. They might both maintain indifferently either productive or unproductive hands. They seem, however, to have some predilection. They seem, however, to have some predilection for the latter. Hmm. The expense of a great lord feeds generally more idle than industrious people. The rich merchant, though, with his capital, he maintains industrious people only. Yet by his experience... Okay. They seem, however, to have some predilection for the, la for the ladder. Ladder, which is um, that which comes after, right? So... All right. The expense of a great deal, the expense of a great deal, the expense of a great deal, the expense of a great lord feeds generally more idle than industrious people. The rich merchant, though with his capital he maintains industries to people only, yet by this experience, that is, by the government of his or own. The rich merchant, though, with his capital, he maintains industrious people only. Yeah. Yet by his expense, that is, by the employment of his revenues, oh, the, the employment of his revenue, he feeds commonly the very same sort as the great lord. All right. The great lord. Huh. Thus... At present, remember folks, this is 7076, thus at present, 
in the opulent countries of Europe, a very large, frequently the largest portion of the produce of the land is destined for replacing the capital of the rich and independent farmers, the other for paying his profits and the rent of the landlord. But anciently, during the during the prevalency of the federal government, a very small portion of the produce was sufficient to replace the capital employed in cultivation. It consisted commonly in a few wretched circles. Or, no, it says cattle. But anciently, during the prevalency of the feudal government, a very small portion, very small portion, of the produce was sufficient to replace the capital employed in cultivation. All right. It, it consisted commonly in a few wretched cattle, wretched, wretched cattle, maintained altogether by the spontaneous produce of unactivated land. Um, if I really needed to get in touch, I could. But let me continue with this book. I just had a... a a spaced out moment here. All right. A few wretched cattle maintained altogether by the spontaneous produce of uncultivated land and which might therefore spontaneously produce, which might therefore be considered as a part of that spontaneous produce. It generally too belonged to the landlord and was by him advanced to the finish line. I'll have to go look. All right. All the rest of the produce properly belonged to him too, either as rent for his land or as profit upon this poultry capital. The occupiers of land were generally bondmen whose per who um, yeah there's some really good bands. What am I chattering on about here? Let me get through this. I'm like falling asleep sitting up. It generally to it generally to belong to the landlord and was by him advanced to the occupiers of the land. All the rest of the produce properly belonged to him too, either as rent for his lands or as profit upon this paltry capital. The occupiers of yeah, the occupiers of the land. All the rest of the produce properly belonged to him too. Uh, either I will be terrible. Right, let me fire the screen back up over here. But right, I got three things going here. I got a few more pages to go, but I'll be done. So all of the rest of the produce properly belonged to him too, either as rent for his land or as profit upon this paltry capital. The occupiers, the occupiers uh, of land were generally bondmen whose persons and effects were equally his property. Those who were not bondmen were tenants still. Okay. The occupiers of land were generally bondmen, those who, whose, perform, whose persons and effects were equally his property. Oh, wow, it's slavery all over again. Now. All right. Those who were not bondmen were tenants at will and through the next hmm. well anyway 
the those who were not bondmen were were tenants at will and though and though the rent which they paid was often a nominally little or more than go on could go forever if you want i'm talking to the Colin and wisdom getting distracted by uh i don't know extreme sleepiness i missed going to sleep last night i was uh, who cares right all right let's take a look this next page here i think two of them got stuck together or there's just thick pages oh no there's two of them no it's not i'm hallucinating what the hell's going on here all right so the lord could at all times command their labor in peace and their service in war though they lived a, at a distance from his house they were quick equally dependent upon him as his retainers who lived in it. Huh. He's talking about the First Nations when he said the one who lived in it? What the hell's going on here? Let's see. Um, the whole picture... Yeah, well, okay, let me back up. The, though they lived a great... Though they lived at, at, a, at a distance from his house, they were equally dependent upon him as his retainers who lived in it. But the whole productive... But the whole produce of the land undoubtedly belongs to him who can dispose of the labor and service of all those whom it maintains. In the present state of Europe, that's 1776 again, guys. In present day, in the present state of Europe, the... Yeah, the, the quality has changed, interestingly enough. Let me continue. But the whole produce of the land undoubtedly belongs to him who can dispose of the labor and service of all those. Why did they stop there? Right. I would be more like a Pepe Le Pew than a Tweety. Where did that come from? Hey, Dreamland, I'm, on, I'm dreaming on my, my, in my seat. That's awesome. Any of you guys hallucinate like that whenever you're, you know? Rest rates go down. Okay, continuing. In the opulent countries of Europe, great capitals are at present employed in trade and manufactures. In the ancient state, the little trade that was stirring and the few homely and coarse manufactures that were carried on required but very small capitals. These, however, must have yielded very large profits. The rate of which... The rate of interest was nowhere less than 10%, and their profits must have been sufficient to afford this great interest. At present, the rate of interest uh, losing track a little bit because my mind is everywhere. All right, let's go back. All right, so in the opulent countries of Europe, great. So though the part... Yeah, the rate of interest was nowhere less than 10%, and their profits must have been sufficient to afford this great interest. At present, the rate of interest in the improved parts of Europe, the improved parts of Europe, like the, like this. <laughs> I, I love it. I love the language. Hey, hey uh, Cicely Marie Goose over on Colin. And while you're over there, I'm just going to say hi to people on uh, Wisdom. Hey, Jenny. Uh, hey, Tello Terry. Uh, Penny Frampton, Levi, and Roy, whether you passed on through or you're sitting the spell. All right, let me 
continue. I really want to get through this. I, I actually um, messed up somewhere in my... I'm derelict in my duty of putting myself to sleep. And uh, I'm actually like sitting here. There was a few times where I dozed off while sitting here with a pen in my hand and a book open. Um, but I'm, I'm going to be like one of those functional alcoholics right now. I'm going to be a functional deprived sleep person and uh, finish up this thing. Like I'm going to do it like a trooper. It's, it's going to happen like on the whole reel. Oh, Jenny Hatch wrote the message uh, on. Oh, I wonder, Jenny. Um, if you're using an iPhone, are you able to hit? Are there like emoji things that you can see over there? Because I'm, I'm wondering what the what the sound is like over there on Wisdom. Because um, I have this crazy setup um, that I've never done before, that I'm experimenting with in the middle of um, of, of Barnes and Noble in Town Center. And uh, I see you over there, Jenny. But it, one of the issues with this setup, as it is, is that uh, there are no there's, I don't think there's any way for me to, um, well, let me try this. I'm going to bring you up and see if I can actually hear you on the external mic and maybe that'll feed to the other ones over here and see what happens. But, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to hear you. So turning up the volume, let's see to make sure the volume's up. Yeah. Um, I, no bueno. I can see your little the thing moving over there, but because of the way that it's plugged in here, it's input only. But hi, how you doing? Good to see you. I'm glad you decided to come on over to Wisdom and sit a spell. You know, what we can do, though, Jenny, is a little bit later, um, we can do a talk here on Wisdom so you can get a feel of of what it's uh, what it's like. Actually, let me see. I can do something like this. Let me see real quick. I'm going to do this just for a few moments so I can hear you. All right, I'm going to unplug. Come on, get out of there. All right. Now, how, how goes it, Jenny? Good. Can you hear me? Yes. The sound quality on Wisdom and Colin are about the same. Okay, good. Well, I got some. Um, but see, the, the thing is, is that on the back end, after I'm done, I wonder what's going to what it's going to sound like when I on Colin, when I um when, when I publish the recording, because, you know, sometimes with the mics that I'm using, but I got three. I'm, I'm on Wisdom Colin and Spreaker at the same time live. So let's see what happens. Yeah, continue. I love I love what you're reading. Yeah, this actually when I understood what he was talking about within the first few sentences. I wonder if that's going to change as I go on. Because <laughs> usually it takes me a few moments before I get some momentum on what the heck Adam Smith is talking about and the language that he's using. But I, I actually got this one pretty, pretty quickly. FYI, I was just on Peter's show on Colin. I saw and that. And he was, he was talking about Wealth of Nations in a positive way. Well, a lot of people have been talking about it the past couple of days, which is, which is interesting because, um, well, I just find that, I mean, that's just the energy of things. I mean, I've been reading from Wealth of Nations for like a month now, getting through the book. And, um, and a lot of people have been talking about Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations. Even last night I was on, I was talking to Danny. And um, there was a guy, Isaac, on there who was saying that uh, Adam Smith was a sociopath or a psychopath or something like that. And I was like, hey, now see you here. Hold on for a moment. But, um, yeah. I think, I think you're having a tremendous influence on everyone over there. So good job. Well, I'm just, uh, I'm just doing what, I, what I'm compelled to do, Jenny. I mean, I, 
I can't help myself. Like I, I, I get going on this book and I just want to, you know, I, I can't do it like you do in college, you know, where they piecemeal stuff together for different lessons and say, write a, an essay on this and do a PowerPoint on that. I, I got to read the book cover to cover. Well, I think it's just tremendous. And I'm, I'm very proud of you. You are much more bold than I am. Yeah. Uh, although, although we just had a wonderful conversation that I felt was the most productive I've ever had on Colin. And I give you the credit for tempering all of the Marxists down. They're just not quite so passionate, which is great. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm like a lone, one of the lone capitalists over there. And um, everybody keeps telling me how bad it is. I, I get where they're coming from because of, you know, and, and that's why I like to divide. And, you know, just like there's, there are different medical practices or um, different grades of different things. There's predatory capitalism. There's crony capitalism, as some people say. You can even call it corporate capitalism if you want to. But I think that it's distinctly different from free market capitalism. I do, too. And that's really where we, you know, kind of got out the knives and started going at each other. Yeah. Because they're just not willing to take that jump. But there's, there's something else that really does work. Well, they, every, everything that I always hear basically, though, is very much like what we learned in hypnosis. Like you can, if you press a button, right, and you get the same response from everybody, that means that they're just listening to a program. They're repeating the same rhetoric over and over again. They're, they're using the same words. Exploitative, exploitative, manipulation, and, you know, quirks, thieves, like evil, it's, and there's no substance behind it. I'm not saying that they're completely wrong about everything they're talking about, but, you know, here I am reading the book from cover to cover and doing my best to understand it, as well as having a copy of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and looking at that too. So I mean, I don't know. I don't. It's I don't, perfect. Yeah, I don't. It's perfect to juxtapose them and yeah. say, "Let's really let's shake it out." And um, what I've noticed from the the um, ca the the Communist Manifesto is that. Um, Marx was heavy, like talks about a lot of ideas in some of the same exact wording as Adam Smith does in Wealth of Nations. So it's not really, I don't know. It's it's it's, they, it's they interesting. They agree. They agree on the problem, which was industrialization was leaving people dead and maimed and murdered, and yet they disagreed on the solutions. And that's where we're at today. Yeah. You know, we can all we can all see clearly where the problems in our society are. We just disagree. What's, what the fix is. Right. Well, so I, I'm going to take you up on your offer to get together later on Wisdom because I was hoping you would make that offer. Do you want to set a time or is it just, you know, um, well, is, it's, your day, is your day too full? No, it's not. I'm going to see about finishing up here as soon as I can um, with this reading and then um, I will uh, I'll, I'll contact you either through the the DM over on Colin or whatnot, and um, and then we can go from there. Cause okay, yeah, that I, sounds great. Yeah, I gotta finish. I gotta finish this up. Um, <clears throat> Cause yeah, I'm also trying to keep. I'm looking at my timer, and I want to just keep the time down on um, on wisdom so that it doesn't go into two hours. Cause once it does, then I lose the entire. Well, actually, no. Now, hopefully, the recording is coming out on um, Spreaker because I'm recording it with. Uh, a Tascam DR05X, so I don't need to download it from Wisdom anymore. So I guess I have a little bit more freedom if, in fact, it does actually work. So Good. Well, I will go back to listening. Thank you. All right, Jenny. Always good to hear from you. Good talking to you. You too. All right.
if uh, anybody else wants to say something real quick before I plug back in this other microphone, um, speak now or forever hold your Reese's Pieces. Wow. Because I, uh, I'm going to plug that microphone in going once in five, four, three, two, and toasties. All right, let's see what the microphone sound changes to now. I'm going to plug this in. All right. All right, well, I don't know. It looks like it might have actually lowered the volume. I mean, I could easily just go straight into the mics of both of these without testing these microphones out. But, hey, I'm like this mad scientist that's over here, like, doing experiments in the middle of live talks. You know, that's how that's how it is. It's like, why not? It's efficient. It can get messy, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway. All right. Yeah, I just channeled uh, Curdy J for a second there. All right. <clears throat> All right, so let's take a look here. Uh, yeah, okay. So we're talking about, again, the name of this chapter, uh, it's chapter three of Wealth of Nations of book two, and it's called Of the Accumulation of Capital or of Productive and Unproductive Labor. So, um, and he's, he's saying very distinctly that there's some labor that's productive and unproductive. I, I don't fully comprehend, I don't think, I made a very quick decision about whether I agree with him or not a while back. So that may mean I just don't understand what he's saying. But he said earlier about some of the um, the labor, he says, unproductive laborers and those who do not labor at all are all maintained by revenue, right? Either first by that part of the annual produce, which is naturally destined for constituting a revenue to some particular persons, either as the rent of land or as the profits of stock, or secondly, by that part, part which, though originally destined for replacing a capital and for maintaining productive laborers only, yet when it comes into their hands, whatever part of it is over and above their necessary subsistence may be employed in maintaining indifferently either productive or unproductive hands. So it's basically just saying that Usually, the stuff that's maintained for productive hands, which are those who actually take the produce of the land and turn it into some commodity, right? Something that that's um, that's that you're able to sell. And if whatever is left over, he's saying that it, the, these unproductive laborers, right, have to be maintained by that excess because um, it's usually destined for something else, but. And then he talks about uh, those who are unproductive. Listen to the list of what he says again, of what he considers unproductive. Here we go. He says, and he actually says the military, right? So he says, the sovereign, for example, with all the officers both of justice and war who serve under him, the whole army and navy are unproductive laborers. They are the servants of the public and are maintained by a part of the annual produce of the industry of other people. Right? So the industry of other people, because what? how does the government pay for stuff, right? The military. So that's what that means right there. And then he says, they are the servants of the public and are maintained by a part of the annual produce of the industry of other people. Their service, how honorable, how useful, or how necessary soever, produces nothing, 
for which an equal quantity of service can afterwards be procured. So that just means for they produce nothing that can be exchanged later. That's what they're um, so which an equal quantity of service right can afterwards be procured. I don't know if I agree with that so much, but maybe again, like I said, I might not understand it. And he says the protection, security, and defense of the Commonwealth. Yeah, hey, I live in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, the effect of their labor this year will not purchase its protection, security, and defense for the year to come. And then he's then he, here's the people he's going to list here. He says are also unproductive because he then says in the same class must be ranked some both of the gravest and most important and some of the most frivolous professions he says gravest most important and frivolous isn't this the frivolous professions churchmen ooh churchmen lawyers some people will agree with that right physicians what men of letters of all kinds hey man back off players what the hell does he mean by that then this is, he says buffoons, musicians. Hey, buddy, come on, take it easy, Adam. Opera singers, opera dancers, etc. He basically just listed almost all of the like the the liberal arts class right there. Um, all right, but anyway, so that's what he's saying. The, he says the labor of the meanest of these has a certain value, regulated by the very same principles which regulate that of every sort of labor. And that of the noblest and most useful produces nothing which could afterwards purchase or procure an equal quantity of labor. So anyway, that's what he said about those. And he says, uh, the declamation of the actor, the harangue of the orator, or the tune of the musician, the work of all of them perishes in the very instant of his production. And that's because y'all didn't have no electricity back then. Valerie, they were living in the dark ages. Didn't have records. They don't have video cameras. What are you talking about? But yeah, I mean, that changes a lot with technology, right? All right, let me continue on where I was over here from another certain point. So let me go to, he says, in the opulent countries of Europe, great capitals are at present employed in the trade and manufactures. In the ancient state, the little, tr the little trade, the little trade that was stirring and the few homely and coarse manufactures that were carried on required but very small capitals. These, however, must have yielded very large profits. The rate of interest was nowhere less than 10%, and their profits must have been sufficient to afford this great interest. At present, the rate of interest in the improved parts of Europe is nowhere higher than 6%, and in some of the most improved, it is so low as 4 3 and 2%. Okay, geeking out again. Sorry, this happens when you when you look at as many things as I do. I, this stuff just pops out to me. It says four, three, two, right? When I see those numbers together, it reminds me of the diameter of the sun in uh, thousands of miles. If you multiply four hundred thirty-two times a thousand, you get the approximately the radius of the sun in miles. And the I'm sorry, the uh, diameter of the sun in miles. And the radius is twice that, of course, at eight hundred sixty-four. All right, back to Adam Smith. All right, so it is nowhere higher than 6% of some most imp improved. It's so low as 4, 3, and 2%. Though that part of the revenue of the inhabitants, which is derived from the profits of stock, is always much greater in rich than in poor countries. It is because the stock is much greater. 
in proportion to the stock, the profits are generally much less. That part of the annual produce, therefore, which as soon as it comes either from the ground or from the hands of the productive laborers, is destined for replacing a capital, is not only much greater in rich than in poor countries, but bears a much greater proportion to that which is immediately destined for constituting a revenue, either as rent or as profit. Right? So always replacing the capital that's replacing the, the the raw materials right whether it comes from the ground or it's produced by the hands of the the laborers i mean i'm following along uh so far hey i just got invited to bible study by sean jolly over at um chesapeake baptist church at seven o'clock shall i stay or shall i go i don't know i'm gonna be tired as hell tonight and i gotta drive pick up my sister in the morning at 11 o'clock and drive her to the airport in Richmond. It's going to be like an hour and 45 minute drive or something like that. But at least I'll be able to stay there for two days. All right, so let's continue. That means I got to make a bunch of money tonight. All right. Though that part of the revenue of the inhabitants, which is derived from the profit stock, is always much greater and rich than in poor countries, right? Run over that. And so he says, the funds destined for the maintenance of productive labor are not only much greater in the former than in the latter, but bear a much greater proportion to those which, though they may be employed to maintain either productive or unproductive hands, have generally a predilection for the latter. Hmm. So... For the, the, the funds usually go to the unproductive hands. Again, and he talked about house servants. Like all, I know all of you guys have servants working in your house, sweeping your floors, mopping up, scrubbing your toilets, cooking your food. So get rid of your, your, your servants, folks. They're unproductive. They do no good. But the, the proportion between those different funds necessarily determines in every country the general character of the inhabitants as to industry or idleness. Wow. Remember, he's using, if you don't, if you're not catching on, he's, when he says industrious people or, or people of industry, he's meaning people who are ambitious or do stuff, right? They're, they're applying themselves in some way. And idleness, of course, is laziness. Or, or really not even lazy, because he's not even using these words in a mean way. He's just using it as descriptive, descriptors, right? as um, people being um, not productive or productive, because that's the title of the chapter, right? Uh, or, you know, of productive and unproductive labor. And he's considering, remember, and I'm going to make this distinction here myself, whether it be correct or not, but I have to move forward with an understanding of something. I'm, I'm looking at him as defining productive as simply that which can be exchanged later for either labor of a different kind that is needed or some other products and services, things that are wanted, needed, and useful. So, continuing. Mm -hmm. All right, so the proportion between those different funds necessarily determines in every country the general character of the inhabitants as to industry or idleness. We are more industrious than our forefathers because in the present times, the funds destined for the maintenance of industry are much greater in proportion to those which are likely to be employed in the maintenance of idleness than they were two or three centuries ago. Our ancestors were idle for want of a sufficient encouragement to, in, to industry. Hmm. It is better, I don't know, I beg to differ. 
what and things might have looked like idleness to certain people, you know, but uh, all right, but let's continue. Our ancestors were idle for want of a sufficient encouragement to industry. It is better, says the proverb, to play for nothing than to work for nothing. Huh. Ah. Play for nothing. I mean, who the fuck is playing for money? Oh, football players. Never mind. All right. Yeah, that's right. We got uh, professional sports now. We make millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, it's billions now combined with all of them, right? All right. So it is better, says the proverb, to play for nothing than to work for nothing. I don't know. Isn't that how apprentices work? And even in back in that time, in one of the early chapters, you talked about how people who apprentice actually pay to apprentice because they have to pay for their, their food and shelter and all that stuff like that. But okay. In mercantile and manufacturing towns where the inferior ranks of people are chiefly maintained by the employment of capital, they are in general industrious, sober, and thriving, as in many English and in most Dutch towns. In those towns which are principally supported by the constant or occasional residence of a court and in which the inferior ranks of people are chiefly maintained by the spending of revenue, they are in general idle dissolute and poor as at rome versailles compagne and fontainebleau if you accept rouen and bordeaux there is little trade or industry in any of the parliament towns of france and the inferior ranks of people being chiefly maintained by the expense of the members of the courts of justice and of those who come to plead before them are in general idle and poor is this that sounds like a little judgy here. And then I thought, just right, right when I opened my mouth and said, no, he's being objective. <clears throat> All right, so, but maybe he still is, and that just seems like that. Like, you know, some people just speak really uh, frankly, and he's just saying it like it is. Maybe, you know, poor is not a, uh, a, an insult to him. He's just saying, hey, they're poor. That's it. Like a lot of people today say, hey, I'm poor. All right, so being chiefly maintained by the expense of the members of the courts of justice and of those who come to plead before them are in general idle and poor. The great trade of Rowan and Bordeaux seems to be altogether the effect of their situation. Rowan is necessarily the entrepôt of almost all the goods which are brought either from foreign countries or from the maritime provinces, uh, maritime provinces of France for the consumption of the great city of Paris. Bordeaux is in the Garonne and of the rivers which run into it, one of the richest wine countries in the world and which seems to produce the wine fittest for, for exportation. Hmm. And which seems to produce the wine fittest for exportation or best suited to the taste of foreign nations. Such advantageous situations necessarily attract a great capital by the great employment which they afford it. Huh. Attracts a great capital by the, by the great employment which they can afford it. Hmm. So such advantageous situations, so the situation attract a great capital, attract the raw materials because of the great employment or the use Right, which those situations afforded. Huh. Oh, I understood that whole freaking string of shit. All right, so, and the employment of this capital, 
is the cause of the industry in those two cities. In the other parliament towns of France, very little more capital seems to be employed than what is necessary for supplying their own consumption. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Than what is necessary for supplying their own consumption. That is, little more than the smallest capital which can be employed in them. So there's hardly an excess. No, no more excess, no, no more supply then there's really demand that can be made use of it, all right? So the same thing may be said of Paris, Madrid, and Vienna. Of those three cities, Paris is by far the most industrious, but Paris itself is the principal market of all the manufacturers established at Paris, and its own consumption is the principal object of all the trade which it carries on. London, Lisbon, and Copenhagen are perhaps the only three cities in Europe which are both the constant residents of a court and can at the same time be considered as trading cities. But you know, that's interesting. What he's saying about those three cities, if they're just their print, they are their own principal market, but the manufacturers established at Paris and its own consumption is a principal object of all the trade which it carries on, that means that they're self sufficient, right? Am I, am I off on that a little bit or? Am I, am I am I getting it? Hey, Mr. Christopher Birkenbine, what's up, brother? All right. So I mean, it would seem that's what uh, is being said there. All right. So, all right. So then, going on, Mr. Uh, Mr. Adam Smith says London, Lisbon, and Copenhagen are perhaps the only three cities in Europe which are both the constant residents of a court, right? Where the you know where the the government the government is big brothers over there, the king and can at the same time be considered as trading cities or as cities which trade not only for their own consumption, but for that of other cities and countries. Yeah, so like he was talking about those other, the th first three cities, right? London, Lisbon, and Copenhagen, everything they make there and then the excess that they use to trade with other places is, is simply for the stuff that they need to use, right? So, am I getting that right? All right, so the continuing. The situation of all the three is extremely advantageous and naturally fits them to be the entrepôt. I don't know how to say that word, entrepôt, for French. All right. Of a great part of the goods destined for the consumption of distant places. In a city where a great revenue is spent to employ with, advent, with advantage a capital for any other purpose than for supplying the consumption of that city is probably more difficult than in one in which the inferior ranks of people have no other maintenance but what they derive from the employment of such a capital. Okay, now he's being, now he's just being a, a, an ass. I mean, I think I've, I've seen, you know, read him making that comment before, but he just keeps on calling them inferior ranks of people. Inferior ranks of Oh, apparently, uh, in a city where a great revenue is spent to employ with advantage a capital for any other purpose than for supplying the consumption of that city, right? So basically a trading center, right? So where great revenue is spent to employ with advantage a capital for any other purpose than for supplying the consumption of that city, right? So then employing that capital, those raw supplies and, and money, for any purpose more than, right, other than for supplying the consumption of that city is probably more difficult than in one 
in which the inferior ranks of people have no other maintenance but what they derive from the employment of such a capital. So basically these undesirables, what do you call them again? The inferior ranks of people that are, that are idle and unproductive and have to be maintained by the king. Hey, hmm, this might be, uh, maybe this is some of the stuff that pissed off uh, Karl Marx. Um, and Karl Marx is kind of, it seems like wanting to go back to that in a way. He says, seize the means of production, but also here people are being maintained by, by the government, right? By the, by the court. And if that's the case, if they're being maintained by the court, then what's actually happening here is that's like, right? Universal basic, they're having their stuff supplied for them. And here, uh, Adam Smith is calling them, um, what is it? Inferior ranks of people. So I don't know. Now, of course, it may be employed differently than back then. There's, you know, we're supposed to be a republic, which, which in the Constitution and the founders of it wanted to do away with, um, you know, nobility and, and empires and shit like that. So that's why the United States is a democratic republic. Um, but, uh, I, you know, we still have all these, uh, you know, um, what would you call it? What does what somebody call those, those, like the Kennedys and oh, dynasties, right? And like the Bushes where everybody's like in in um, positions of power and government and stuff like that. So, I mean, we didn't really do away with it. Or they snuck it in somehow. All right, but let me continue. He says, all right, the idleness of the greater part of the people who are maintained by the expense of revenue corrupt, it is probable, the industry of those who ought to be maintained by the employment of capital and renders it less advantageous to employ capital there than in other places. Right. So again, he's calling these inferior ranks of people that they are corrupting the, the, the industry of those who ought to be maintained by the employment of capital, meaning um, the people who are working for it, I guess, right? Um, and renders it, the capital, less advantageous to employ a capital there than in other places. There was, because usually if, if the trade, if the capital, right, the money and the raw materials are being used to maintain the people, they can't be used to get more materials and to produce more. So it's less advantageous to employ the capital in another place. Okay, continuing, there was little trade or industry in Edinburgh before the Union. When the Scotch Parliament was no longer to be assembled in it, when it ceased to be the necessary residence of the principal nobility and gentry of Scotland, it became a city of some trade and industry. It still continues, however, to be the residence of the principal course of justice in Scotland, of the boards of customs and excise, and etc. A considerable revenue, therefore, still continues to be spent in it. In trade and industry, it is much inferior to Glasgow, of which the inhabitants are chiefly maintained by the employment of capital. The inhabitants of a large village, it has sometimes been observed, after having made considerable progress in manufactures, have become idle and poor, in consequence of a great of a great lord's having taken up his residence in their neighborhood. Oh, so making people's pe people peasants, and then they just stop. They become idle because they're being taken care of. So I wonder. You know, I'm not saying that this is what universal basic income and basic necessities are, are going to do to people, but it kind of 
you know, you can look at it that way, right? Because it's basically saying when when a great lord or somebody went in there, what they usually do is they they use their ex they they go they spend a great expense to maintain those people. And he's saying here that the inhabitants of a large village it has sometimes been observed after having been made or after having made considerable pro progress in manufactures, meaning they were making their own shit. Um, have become idle and poor in consequence of a great lord's having taken up his residence in a neighborhood. So, all right. Continuing. The proportion between capital and revenue, therefore, seems everywhere to regulate the proportion between industry and idleness. Okay. The proportion between capital and revenue, therefore, seems everywhere to regulate the proportion between industry and idleness. All right. So between... People being industrious or idle, or people being, uh, what's the word we talk about here? Uh, it's very good. Oh, ambitious, right? So between people being ambitious or lazy, you could say, right? Industri between industry and idleness. Continuing, wherever capital predominates, industry prevails. Oh, he's making a case for capitalism. Wherever capital dominates, he says, wherever capital predominates industry prevails wherever revenue idleness ah oh aha so if you have more capital more money and more um because remember there's there's uh there's fixed capital and circulating capital right and those things all add to production and making things but the revenue that comes back into it if that's just being used to maintain the people, instead of instead of um, capital, like raw materials and money and supplies and, and other tools and things like that going into the hands of the people to make stuff with, um, when that but when it's there, it uh, they become more industrious because they have the tools of the trade and the, the raw materials to make stuff with. But if they're just given money and just being taken care of, right? And idleness. So he says, wherever capital predominates, industry prevails, wherever revenue, idleness. Continuing, every increase or diminution of capital, therefore, naturally tends to increase or diminish the real quantity of industry, the number of productive hands, and consequently the exchangeable value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country, the real wealth and revenue of all its inhabitants. Yep, and that's my definition of wealth, too produce of the land and the labor of mankind. And he says it right there again, because and that's where I first heard it, and it makes the most sense, right? Every increase. So every increase or diminution of capital, therefore, naturally tends to increase or diminish the real quantity of industry, the number of productive hands, and consequently, the exchangeable value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country the real wealth and revenue of all its inhabitants. This is the definition of, of value right there, which which money has replaced value and, and are only representations and expressions of it, which can be manipulated with interest and all kinds of other means, derivatives and things like that, which create black holes of debt. But let me not go on that tirade right now and continue. Capitals are increased by parsimony and diminished by prodigality and misconduct. Hmm. Capitals are increased by parsimony and diminished by prodigality, prodigality and misconduct. All right. Um, let my dumbass go ahead real quick and make sure that I 
I'll clear up these definitions. Parsimony. Let's look at some parsimony. Did you sprinkle some of that parsimony on your uh, your chicken there? It tastes really good. No, idiot. Parsimony, not parsley. All right, parsimony. All right, let's see what, uh, what we got here. Parsimony. Extreme unwillingness to spend money. Okay. Parsimonious. So capitals are increased by, oh, this is interesting because that's an interest, that's a, one of the part of one of the ideas. It's like saving, right? Or withholding, the, like like how uh, um, Morgan Housel in the Psychology Money talks about that wealth is the assets unused and the money unspent that is saved with a goal in mind for, um, for using later for things that are investments and whatnot. And experiences to be had. So, okay, and prodigality, prodigal. Would that would that be spending more? I know prodigal sons. And how is he using it here? Prodigality. Um, the ha habit. Yeah. So prodigality now that means the act of spending or using large amounts of money, time, and energy or materials in a way that is not very wise. Okay. And misconduct. So that makes sense. So capitals are increased by parsimony, right? Being. Uh, being uh, withholding spending and diminished by prodigality, excessive spending, or misconduct. Stealing, maybe? I don't know. Dishonesty? But misconduct. All right. Talking about misconduct with money. You bad little children. Continue. Whatever a person saves from his revenue, he adds to his capital and either employs it himself in maintaining an additional number of productive hands or enables some other person to do so by lending it to him for an interest, that is, for a share of the profits. As the capital of an individual can be increased only by what he saves from his annual revenue or his annual gains, so the capital of a society, which is the same with that of all the individuals who compose it, can be increased only in the same manner. Hey, government, listen up. Stop spending so much fucking money. Parsimony and not industry is the immediate cause of the increase of capital. Huh. Industry indeed provides the subject which parsimony accumulates. But whatever industry might acquire, if parsimony did not save and store up, the capital would never be the greater. Hey, of course, you've got a hole in your bucket. Keep filling with as much water as you want to. It's going to keep leaking out. Parsimony by increasing the fund, which is destined for the maintenance of productive hands, tends to increase the number of those hands whose labor adds to the value of the subject upon which it is bestowed. It tends, therefore, to increase the exchangeable value of the annual produce of the land and the labor of the country. It puts into motion an additional quantity of industry, which gives an additional value to the annual produce. What is annually saved is as regularly consumed as what is annually spent, and nearly in the same time too, but it is consumed by a different set of people. That portion of his revenue, which a rich man annually spends, is in most cases consumed by idle guests and menial servants who leave nothing behind them in return for their consumption. That portion which he annually saves, as for the sake of the profit, it is immediately employed as capital, is consumed in the same manner and nearly in the same time too, but by a different set of people, 
by laborers, manufacturers, and artificers who reproduce with a profit the value of their annual consumption. He's basically talking a little bit about where you're spending your money, right? Like either in um, things that are just uh, frivolous or whether it's going to be um, returning an investment of some kind. It's pretty easy to understand there. I actually got that right away. But it's because he mentioned that earlier. On the first on the first page, I think he said well he said um, a man gets rich. It was one of these very first ones. It was very, very clear. He basically oh yes, here we go. He says a man grows rich by employing a multitude of manufacturers. He grows poor by maintaining a multitude of menial servants. I mean, regardless of whether you agree with his language or how it might even sound to me or you that he's like that he's putting down by calling people, uh, what did he say? I like, it, I like his language. What do you, what do you call him? He says, uh, on this page over here. Oh, gosh. I don't even know where the heck it is on that page. <clears throat> uh, well, we'll forget the, the 1776 insults for now. We'll have to continue on. I'll figure it out. Oh, inferior ranks of people. <laughs> That's what he says. All right. So, what is continuing? What is annually saved is as regularly consumed as what is annually spent, and nearly in the same time too. But it is consumed by a different set of people. That portion of his revenue, which a rich man annually spends, is in most cases consumed by idle guests and menial servants who leave nothing behind them in return for their consumption. That portion which he annually saves as for the sake of the profit it is immediately employed as capital is consumed in the same manner and nearly in the same time too, but by a different set of people, by laborers, manufacturers, and artificers who reproduce with the profit the value of their annual consumption. I think that directly relates, right? He says a man grows rich by employing a multitude of manufacturers. He grows poor by maintaining a multitude of menial servants. Look for the meaning in there, not uh, the way he's putting people in a certain spot it's it's apparent there it's just it's what are you doing how are you employing your funds right uh okay that portion which you only save for the sake of profit is immediately employed as capital as a capital consumed in the same manner nearly the same time too but by a different set of people by laborers manufacturers and artificers who reproduce with a profit the value of their annual consumption his revenue we shall suppose is paid him in money had he spent the whole the food clothing, and lodging, which the whole could have purchased, would have been distributed among the former set of people. By saving a part of it, as that part is for the sake of the profit immediately employed as a capital either by himself or by some other person, the food, clothing, and lodging, which may be purchased with it, are necessarily reserved for the latter. The consumption is the same, but the consumers are different. By what a... Yeah. You get it? Got it? I got it. He hammered it away enough for me. By what a frugal man annually saves, he not only affords maintenance to an additional number of productive hands for that or the ensuing year, but like the founder of a public workhouse, he establishes, as it were, a perpetual fund for the maintenance of an equal number in all times to come always guarded by any Oh, hold on for a second. What is it? 
Right. He established, as it were, a perpetual form for the maintenance of an equal number in all times to come. The perpetual allotment and destination of this fund indeed is not always guarded by any positive law, by any trust right or deed of, of mortmain. It is always guarded, however, by a very powerful principle, the plain and evident interest every individual to whom any share of it shall ever belong no part of it can ever afterwards be employed to maintain any but productive hands without an evident loss to the person who thus perverts it from its proper destination all right he's saying that you gotta spend the money on making shit happen because that's its proper destination you're just using it to party and drink it away and on uh, frivolous entertainment, right? You can, you can equate it like that. Would you agree that that's what is being said? Right? That he's basically saying reinvest it. You know, use some of it as the stuff you need and for your entertainment. But if all of it just goes to doing that, it just it's like just going away and not coming back. <clears throat> Continuing, he says the prodigal. Remember, those are the ones who spend a lot. The prodigal perverts it. Is the prodigal perverse it in this manner? By not confining his expense with his, within his income, he encroaches upon his capital. Like him who perverts the revenues of some pious foundations to profane purposes, he pays the wages of idleness with those funds, which the frugality of his forefathers had, as it were, consecrated to the maintenance of industry. Wow. He just put it like that. It's like, y'all rich kids don't know how to manage your money. Your forefathers had, as it were, consecrated to maintenance industry. But you, you, you're perverting the revenues to some pious foundations to profane purposes. Continuing, by diminishing the funds destined for the employment of productive labor, he necessarily diminishes, so far as it depends upon him, the quantity of that labor which adds a value to the subject upon which it is bestowed, and, consequently, the value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the whole country, the real wealth and revenue of its inhabitants. Wow, he's saying that over and over again. I'm starting to think that I was... Uh, now I picked up on some of the right stuff. Maybe it's because of repetition and being hypnotized by Adam Smith. Continuing, if the prodigality of some was not compensated by the frugality of others, the conduct of every prodigal by feeding the idle with the bread of the industrious tends not only to beggar himself, but to impoverish his country. Though the expense of the prodigal should be altogether in homemade and no part of it in foreign commodities, its effect upon the productive funds... Oh, that sounds like protectionism. I learned that. I learned about protectionism. Right. Though the expense of the prodigal should be altogether home in homemade and no part of it in foreign commodities, its effect upon the productive funds of the society would still be the same. Every year, there would still be a certain quantity of food and clothing which ought to have maintained productive, employed in maintaining productive... Ah... Every year there would still be a certain quantity of food and clothing, which ought to have maintained productive, employed in maintaining unproductive hands. Every year, therefore, there would still be some diminution in what would otherwise have been the value of the annual labor of the land and labor of the country. Ah, right. So that siphoning off by giving it to idleness is 
it's like spilling out of it. It's like got a hole in the bucket. So, spending on bullshit. It's, you know, if you think about like this way, this just came to mind, right? So if, if there's, if, if you have like a gallon of water, right? And then you freeze it and then uh, melt it down later, right? It should have the same gallon, right? But what if you poked a hole in that gallon of water container and then as it was freezing, some of it leaked out? To these unproductive things he's talking about, right? Then when you, by the time it froze, there would be less. So naturally, when you when you unfroze it, there would be less water left. And so it's it's like draining. Huh. It's it, it. This is so related in on a massive scale to when people would shave off coins, which is why they started putting those ridges on the end of them, right? As it went around and circulated, they would shave a little bit of silver or gold off the coin. Um. So that after a while, it wasn't as much of it left, even though it was still circulating for a while, almost like the same thing, because it looked almost the same, right, before they put those little ridges on the end of it. But eventually, there wasn't really as much of it left anymore. It went from an ounce to, you know, three quarters of an ounce, as much as they could shave it off without somebody noticing, right? All right, so, hmm. Let me continue here. Yes, the annual every year. Therefore, there would still be some diminution in what otherwise would have been the value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country. So, because of that leakage and people being being prodigal, they're siphoning out. Or, you know what? It also reminds me of something in physics, right? Like heat. Um, when in like electrical systems you know there's a there's a loss of some of the of the energy that gets lost as heat and so that's kind of like it is like radiating off so there's not as much power as started at the the the, the power plant as by the time it gets to your home because some of that energy is lost in the form of heat ever slightly a little bit you still get the power to your house but that's because they know how to you know regulate that voltage they push a lot of it through some of the energy is lost in heat, so they have to put. So you actually, in order to get, um, let's let's use a simple number. In order to get a hundred watts, right, they have to push a hundred and ten, because ten watts gets lost as heat. What well, isn't a watt heat? Chris, you gotta help me out, Mr. Physicist. All right, so. Uh, continuing, the expense it m- may be, but you know I got the I got the I'm on the I'm on the right track there. The the expense it may be said indeed not being in foreign goods and not occasioning any exportation of gold and silver, the same quantity of money would remain in the country as before. But if the quantity of food and clothing which were thus consumed by unproductive had been distributed among productive hands. They would have reproduced, together with a profit, the full value of their consumption. This really sounds a lot like physics to me. Why am I getting that, Chris? Why am I getting this? This sounds like physics. Like it's it's coming back to the system, right? And it's not being siphoned off. There's like no leak. There's no loss of power. He's saying, if it had been redistributed among productive hands or kept in the same system, right? Together with a profit, the full value of the consumption. Right? So, but if the quantity of food and clothing which were thus consumed by unproductive, right, if it was, had been distributed among productive hands, those productive hands, right, they would have reproduced, together with a profit, the full value of their consumption. 
the same quantity of money would in this case equally have remained in the country and there would besides have been a reproduction of an equal value of consumable goods there would have been two values instead of one <clears throat> the same quantity of money besides cannot long remain in any country in which the value of the annual produce diminishes the sole use of money is to circulate consumable goods by means of it provisions materials and finished work are bought and sold and distributed to other proper consumers the quantity of money therefore which can be annually employed in any country must be determined by the value of the consumable goods annually circulated within it these must consist either in the immediate produce of the land and the labor of the country itself or in something which had been purchased with some part of that produce their value therefore must diminish as the value of that produce diminishes and along with it the quantity of money which can be employed in circulating them but the money which by this annual diminution of produce is annually thrown out of domestic circulation will not be allowed to lie idle the interest of whoever possesses it requires that it should be employed but having no employment at home, it will, in spite of all laws and prohibitions, be sent abroad and employed in purchasing consumable goods which may be of some use at home. Its annual exportation will, in this manner, continue for some time to add something to the annual consumption of the country beyond the value of its own annual produce. What in the days of its prosperity had been saved from that annual produce and employed in purchasing gold and silver will contribute for some little time to support its consumption in adversity. The exportation of gold and silver is, in this case, not the cause but the effect of its, of its declension and may even for some little time alleviate the misery of that declension. Okay, let me just make sure this word declension has come up a few times. We're going to we're going to look at declension again. Declension. It does, it does mean going down. Right? It's a, it doesn't sound like a, 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 a good word. In the grammar of Latin, Greek, and other languages, right, it means refers to the changing of a word's ending. For example, a noun's ending might change in English world. Declension. Or oh, downward movement. There you go. Such as a road on a hill. So declension. Decline. It's a decline. All right. The quantity of money on the contrary, must in every country naturally increase as the value of the annual produce increases, the value of the consumable goods annually circulated within the society being of the increased produce, therefore will naturally be employed in purchasing whatever it is to be had, the additional quantity of gold and silver necessary for circulating the rest. The increase of those metals will in this case be the effect, not the cause, of the public prosperity. Gold and silver are purchased everywhere in the same manner. The food, clothing, and lodging, the revenue and maintenance of all those whose labor or stock is employed in bringing them from the mine to the market is the price paid for them in Peru as well as in England. The country which has this price to pay will never be long without the quantity of those metals which it has occasion for, and no country will ever long retain a quantity which it has no occasion for. Whatever, therefore, we may imagine the real wealth and revenue of a country to consist in, whether in the value of the annual produce of its land and labor, as plain reason seems to dictate, or in the quantity of the precious metals which circulate within it, as vulgar prejudice suppose. Yes, he said it again, right? The, 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 the true wealth 
right? He says, he says the annual says whether whatever we may imagine the real wealth and revenue of a country to consist in, right? But he says whatever we may imagine. This is the key point. Whatever we may imagine the real wealth and revenue of a country to consist in. Then he says whether in the value of the annual produce of its land and labor, as plain reason seems to dictate. Then he says or in the quantity of the precious metals which circulate within it as vulgar prejudices suppose. That means he's saying again, like I've been saying too, thank you, Adam Smith, that gold and silver are not real wealth. It's the produce of the land and the labor of humankind. All right, and he says it over and over again. Thank you for hypnotizing me, Mr. Adam Smith. In either view of the matter, every prodigal appears to be a public enemy and every frugal man a public benefactor. Hmm. The effect, this is actually one of my favorite uh, chapters so far, book, chapter three, book two. The effects of misconduct are often the same as those of prodigality. Every injudic injudicious and unsuccessful project in agriculture, mines, fisheries, trade, or manufactures tends in the same manner to diminish the funds destined for the maintenance of productive labor. In every such project, though the capital is consumed by productive hands only, yet, as by the injudicious manner in which they are employed, they do not reproduce the full value of their consumption, there must always be some diminution in what would otherwise have been the productive funds of the society. It can seldom happen, indeed, that the circumstances of a great nation can be much affected either by the prodigality or misconduct of individuals. The profusion or imprudence of some being always more than compensated by the frugality and good conduct of others. With regard to profusion, the principle which prompts to expense is the passion for present enjoyment, which, though sometimes violent and very difficult to be restrained, is in general only momentarily, momentary and occasional. But the principle which prompts to save is the desire of bettering our condition, a desire which, though generally calm and dispassionate, comes with us from the womb and never leaves us till we go to the grave. Wow, so he's saying that profusion, like excess spending, that prodigality, which prompts people to expense, right? Spending a lot of money. It's pat is the passion for present enjoyment. And I would add, to, as opposed to delayed gratification, right? He says, which, though sometimes violent and very difficult to be restrained, many people go crazy to spend money, is in general only momentarily and occasional. But he's saying from birth right here that, that our, our uh, thriftiness and our saving, he says, but the principle which prompts us to save is the desire of bettering our condition. So he's equating those two things. But a desire to better our condition, a desire which, though generally calm and dispassionate, comes with us from the womb. All right. So the principle of the desire of bettering ourselves, we're born with that, he says, and never leaves us till we go to the grave. Hmm. Looks like it bears looking at that and seeing if that's something we should uncover. <clears throat> All right. Goes with us to the grave. That's another good one. Where's that? Page 236. All right. In the whole interval which separates those two moments, there is scarce perhaps a single instant 
in which any man is so perfectly and completely satisfied with his situation as to be without any wish or alteration of improvement of any kind. An augmentation of fortune is the means by which the greater part of men propose and wish to better their condition. Hmm. That's like the book, The Science of Getting Rich. I mean, this is, uh, there's a lot of good crossover here. An augmentation of fortune, right? Increasing the fortune is the means by which the greater part of men propose and wish to better their condition. It is the means, the most vulgar and the most obvious, and the most likely way of augmenting their fortune is to save and accumulate some part of what they acquire, either regularly and annually or upon some extraordinary occasions. Though the principle of expense, therefore, prevails in almost all men upon some occasions, and in some men upon almost all occasions, yet in the greater part of men, taking the whole course of their life at an average, the principle of frugality seems not only to predominate, but to predominate very greatly. Is that true? Most people are spenders? I don't know. I mean, savers? Let's see. He's saying it predominates. Right very greatly. With regard to misconduct, the number of prudent and successful undertakings is everywhere much greater than that of injudicious and unsuccessful ones. After all our complaints of the frequency of bankruptcies, the unhappy men who fall into this misfortune make but a very small part of the whole number engaged in trade and all other sorts of business, not much more perhaps than one in a thousand. Is that true? Don't they say that most businesses fail within a year, like nine out of ten? Maybe I'm not understanding that correctly. They're saying, uh, da, 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 da. yeah, but not perhaps more than one in a thousand. Bankruptcy is perhaps the greatest and most humiliating calamity which can be which can befall an innocent man. <laughs> innocent. The greater part of men, therefore, are sufficiently careful to avoid it. Some, indeed, do not avoid it, as some do not avoid the gallows. Damn. <laughs> it's like shit. Some people are just destined to have their heads cut off by their their prodigality, their spendiness. Right. Continuing, great nations are never impoverished in private, though they sometimes are by public prodigality and misconduct. Yeah, so a nation that spends like a fucking maniac. So they're never impoverished in private, though they are sometimes by public prodigality and misconduct. Don't know if I agree agree with that either, because. You know, there's some people might be behind the scenes doing some crazy shit with the money. I'm not telling anybody. Continuing. The whole or almost the whole public revenue is in most countries employed in maintaining unproductive hands. Such are the people who compose a numerous and splendid court, a great ecclesiastical establishment, great fleets and armies who in time of peace produce nothing and in time of war acquire nothing which can compensate the expense of maintaining them. Hey, maybe that's why they go over and steal oil from everywhere, right? When I say they, you know I'm talking about. Um, so let's see. So such are the people who compose a numerous and splendid court, a great ecclesiastical establishment, churches, great fleets and armies, the military, who in time of peace produce nothing, and in time of war acquire nothing, which can compensate the expense of maintaining them, even while the war lasts. So that's why we, we got to go steal opium and oil and all kind of shit and land. Such people, 
as they themselves produce nothing, are all maintained by the produce of other men's labor. When multiplied, therefore, to an unnecessary number, they may in a particular year consume so great a share of this produce as not to leave a sufficiency for maintaining the productive laborers who should reproduce it next year. The next year's produce, therefore, will be less than that of the foregoing, and if the same disorder should continue, that of the third year will still be less than that of the second. Those unproductive hands, who should be maintained by a part only of the spare revenue of the people, may consume so great a share of their whole revenue, and thereby oblige so great a number to encroach upon their capitals, upon the funds destined for the maintain maintenance of productive labor, that all the frugality and good conduct of individuals may not be able to compensate the waste and degradation of produce occasioned by this violent and forced encroachment. Mm. Wow. That's, that's pretty... That's pretty solid right there. I might not agree with how he's painting the picture, but he's painting a very uh, sober and realistic picture. This is, it's, it's basically just um, stop wasting. This is about efficiency. He could, have called, he could just call this, this fucking chapter efficiency instead of that long-ass title of the accumulation of capital or productive and unproductive labor. All right. This frugality and good conduct, however, is upon most occasions... It appears from experience sufficient to compensate not only the private prodigality and misconduct of individuals, but the public extravagance of government. The uniform, constant, and uninterrupted effort of every man to better his condition, the principle from which the public and national as well as private opulence is originally derived, is frequently powerful enough to maintain the natural progress of things toward improvement in spite of of both the extravagance of government and of the greatest errors of administration. Like the unknown principle of animal life, it frequently restores health and vigor to the constitution in spite not only of the disease, but of the absurd prescriptions of the doctor. <laughs> he said, he said absurd. Uh, I like it. This book is changing my brain. The annual produce of the land and labor of any nation can be, this is definitely my favorite chapter so far. The annual produce of the land and labor of any nation can be increased in its value by no other means, but by increasing either the number of its productive laborers or the productive powers of those laborers who had before been employed. That might give people jobs. The number of its productive laborers is evident. By the way, I just read something recently too about how even amidst bricks, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa expansion, that group, and wanting to de-dollarize, that the U.S. dollar has actually um, strengthened, um, and that's mostly because uh, jobs have increased in the country. I don't know if that's true or not, any one of those parts of it, but I do know that if the jobs did increase, the dollar would get stronger. And as Steve is even saying here, right, um, increasing the number of its productive laborers or the productive power of those laborers. Oh yeah, technology, right? To augment that, to help it out. Okay. He says, it is evident, can never be, okay, right, 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 right. And so 
the annual produce of the land and labor of any nation can be increased in its value by no other means but by increasing either the number of its productive laborers or by the productive power of those laborers who had before been un been employed yes yeah, so more increase increase Yes, increase in his Babylonian by increasing either the number of his productive laborers or by the productive powers of those of those laborers who had before been employed. So increase that number. The number of his productive laborers, it is evident, can never be much increased, but in consequence of an increase of capital or of the funds destined for maintaining them. The productive powers of the same number of laborers cannot be increased, but in consequence either of some addition and improvement to those machines, I just said a technology, and instruments which facilitate and abridge labor, or of a more proper division and distribution of employment. Again, this is all about efficiency. In either case, an additional capital is almost always required. It is by means of an additional capital only that the undertaker of any work can either provide his workmen with better machinery or make a more proper distribution of employment among them. When the work to be done consists of a number of parts, to keep every man constantly employed in one way requires a much greater capital than where every man is occasionally employed in many every different part of the work. So he's talking about specializing, right? Again, efficiency. Then rather than people doing all kinds of different jobs and wasting time moving from one station to the next, right? Continuing, when we compare, therefore, the state of a nation at two different periods and find that the annual produce of its land and labor is evidently greater at the latter than at the former, that its lands are better cultivated, its manufactures more numerous and more flourishing, and its trade more extensive, we may be assured that its capital must have increased during the interval between those two periods, and that more must have been added to it by the good conduct of some than had been taken from it either by the private misconduct of others or by the public extravagance of government. But we shall find this to have been the case of almost all nations, in all tolerably quiet and peaceful times, even of those who have not enjoyed the most prudent and parsimonious governments. To form a right judgment of it, indeed, we must compare the state of the country at periods somewhat distant from one another. The progress is frequently so gradual that at near periods, the improvement is not only not sensible, but from the declension either of certain branches of industry or certain districts of the country, things which sometimes happen, though the contrary in general be in great prosperity, there frequently arises a suspicion that the riches and industry of the whole are decaying. The annual produce of the land and labor of England, for example, is certainly much greater than it was a little more than a century ago at the restoration of Charles II. Though at present few people, I believe, doubt of this, yet during this period five years have seldom passed away in which some book or pamphlet has not been published, written to with such abilities as to gain some authority with the public, and pretending to demonstrate that the wealth of the nation was fast declining, that the country was depopulated, agriculture neglected, manufactures decaying, and trade undone. Nor have these publications been all party pamphlets with the wretched offspring of falsehood and finality. Many of them have been written by very candid and very intelligent people who wrote nothing but what they believed, and for no other reason but because they believed it. Damn. So he's saying, this is, he's saying fear-mongering happens 
because uh, people believe that the shit is getting fucked up, but um, when only and only because they believe it, not because they even have any backup for it. That they're very intelligent people, that they're candid, intelligent, but they write this stuff, and that before that he even says that these. Um, that they haven't been the, the wretched offspring of falsehood and venality, right? So they're not the, the often not being produced because people are lying necessarily. They, they're publishing because they believe it. They're publishing that, that that it's demonstrating that the wealth of the nation was fast declining, the country is depopulated, agriculture neglected, right? Um, and written too with such ability, he's saying by people who write really well, right, as to gain some authority with the public. Oh, and by the way, if y'all don't remember, um, my, one of my degrees is in clinical hypnosis, and the first hypnotic modality is authority or one-upsmanship. And so that's what convinces people. But continuing, right? The annual produce of the land and labor of England, again, was certainly much greater at the restoration than we can suppose it to have been about a 100 years before, at the occasion of Elizabeth. At this period, too, we have all reason to believe the country was much more advanced in improvement than it had been almost about a century before, toward the close of the dissensions between the houses of York and Lancaster. Even then, it was probably in a better condition than it had been at the Norman Conquest, and at the Norman Conquest than during the confusion of the Saxon uh, heptarchy. Even at this early period, it was certainly a more improved country than at the invasion of Julius Caesar, when its inhabitants were nearly in the same state with the savages in North America. <laughs> he says... Oh, man, I love the savages in North America. You mean those people that you went over there and everybody went over there and killed fucking colonizers? All right. So he calls them the savages in North America. But but you get the point, right? He's saying that he's he's building up to the fact that even though as time went on and advancements were made, the general wealth of the country and the position it was being better. However... He's going to continue, I bet. I'm, I'm guessing he's going to make the point that he just did before. He says, in each of these periods, however, there was not only much private and public profusion, right? So people are, are spending a lot, many expensive and unnecessary wars, great perversion of the annual produce from maintaining productive to maintain unproductive hands, but sometimes in the confusion of civil discord, such absolute waste and destruction of stock as might be supposed not only to retard as it certainly did natural accumulation of riches but to have left the country at the end of the period poorer than at the beginning thus in the happiest and most fortunate period of them all that which has passed since the restoration how many disorders and misfortunes have occurred which could they have been foreseen not only the impoverishment, but the total ruin of the country would have been expected from them. The fire and the plague of London, the two Dutch wars, the disorders of the revolution, the war in Ireland, the four expensive French wars of 1688, 1702, 1742, and 1756, together with the two rebellions of 715 and 1745. In the course of the four French wars, the nation has contracted more than 145 millions of debt, over and above all the other extraordinary annual expense which they occasion, so that the whole cannot be computed at less than 200 millions. Wow, listen to that back in that day, 200 millions. We're spending trillions now, right? 
So great a share of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country has, since the revolution, been employed upon different occasions in maintaining an extraordinary number of unproductive hands. But had not those wars given this particular direction to so large a capital, the greater part of it would naturally have been employed in maintaining productive hands whose labor would have replaced with a profit the whole value of their consumption. The, the value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country would have been considerably increased by it every year, and every year's increase would have augmented still more that of the following year. More houses would have been built. More lands would have been improved, and those which had been improved before would have been better cultivated. More manufacturers would have been established, and those which had been established before would have been more extended, and to what height the real wealth and revenue of the country might, by this time, have been raised, it is not perhaps very easy even to imagine. Wow. No, Chase. Not right now. All right. Where is that? How the hell is that thing ringing in my ear like that? All right, there we go. Okay, let's go. Let's continue here. Wow, he's saying it's not that I don't. Not all that shit gone down where it was misconduct and prodigality and uh, profusion, right? Wastefulness. If that hadn't happened, he said it's very hard to imagine how what the real the height of the real wealth of the and revenue of the country might be. All right. We're almost, almost there. All right, so. But though the profusion of government must undoubtedly have retarded the natural progress of England towards wealth and improvement, it has not been able to stop it. Ah, listen to that. Right? All, though the profusion, right, the wastefulness of government must undoubtedly have retarded, right, slowed down the natural progress of England towards wealth and improvement, it has not been able to stop right? The, the progress of England towards wealth improvement. And that can be said with a lot of things. Continuing, the annual produce of its land and labor is undoubtedly much greater at present than it was either at the restoration or at the revolution. The capital, therefore, annually deployed or annually employed in cultivating this land and in maintaining this labor must likewise be much greater in the midst of all the exactions of government, this capital has been silently and gradually accumulated by the private frugality and good conduct of individuals, by their universal, continual, and uninterrupted effort to better their own condition. It is this effort, protected by law and allowed by liberty to exert itself in the manner that is most advantageous, which has maintained the progress of England towards opulence and improvement in almost all former times, and which, it is to be hoped, will do so in all future times. England, however, as it has never been blessed with a very parsimonious government, so parsimony has at no time been the characteristical virtue of its inhabitants. It is the highest impertinence and presumption, therefore, in kings and ministers to pretend to watch over the economy of private people and to restrain their expense either by sumptuary laws or by prohibiting the importation of foreign luxuries. They are themselves always, and without any exception, the greatest spendthrifts in the society. 
Let them look well after their own expense, and they may safely trust private people with theirs. If their own extravagance does not ruin the state, that of their subjects never will. Damn, dude. I tell, I'm serious. This is my favorite chapter. Adam is breaking it down so far. It's like, hey, government, can you slow down? With all your fucking shit. Let them look well after their own expense, and they may safely trust private people with theirs. If their own extravagance does not ruin the state, that of their subjects never will. All right. As frugality increases and prodigality diminishes the public capital, so the conduct of those who, whose expense just equals their revenue without either accumulating or encroaching neither increases nor diminishes it. Yeah, so... Frugality increases, prodigality diminishes, the public capital. So the conduct of those whose expense just equals their revenue. So people who spend just as much as they earn without either accumulating or encroaching, neither increases nor diminishes it. Some modes of expense, however, seem to contribute more to the growth of public opulence than others. And this is, uh, again, he's probably going to be referring to the productive the revenue of an individual may be spent either in things which are consumed immediately and in which one day's expense can. Night, this is a fumble in the punctuation or some printing in this book. Right. The revenue of an individual may be spent either in things which are consumed immediately and in which one day's expense can neither alleviate nor support that of another or... It may be spent in things more durable, which can therefore be accumulated, and in which every day's expense may, as the chooses, as he chooses, either alleviate or support and heighten the effect of that of the following day. Yep, there he goes again with efficiency. A man of fortune, for example, may either spend his revenue in a profuse and sumptuous table and in maintaining a great number of menial servants and a multitude of dogs and horses or contenting himself with a frugal table and a few attendants. He may lay out the greater part of it in adorning his house or in his country villa. <laughs> this is laughable. Like as if everybody, well, at least he said a man of fortune, right? I'm talking about everybody. A man of fortune, for example, may either spend his revenue in a profuse and sumptuous table and in maintaining a great number of menial servants and a multitude of dogs and horses or contenting himself with a frugal table and a few attendants. He may lay out the greater part of it in adorning his house or his country villa in useful or ornamental buildings, in useful or ornamental furniture, in collecting books, statues, pictures, or in things more frivolous, jewels, baubles, ingenious trinkets of different kinds, or, what is most trifling of all, in amassing a great wardrobe of fine clothes, like the favorite and min like the like the favorite and minister of a great prince who died a few years ago. Huh. I was just talking about that yesterday too, when people were, were railing on about about communism and shit, and I'm like, nah man, capitalism doesn't have to be bad, you just don't understand it. And he said two things right in a row that I said yesterday, which one, I buy quality products so that I don't have to buy them over and over again and therefore in the long run spend less money. And then two, right, um, shunning like, ah, like I don't do all the name brand shit, I make my own fashion, right? Because that stuff doesn't matter. People think it does, but all right, let me not go off on it. Adam Smith is saying enough, right? 
in things more frivolous, jewels, baubles, ingenious trinkets of different kinds, or what is most trifling of all, in amassing a great wardrobe of fine clothes, like the favorite and minister of a great prince who died a few years ago. Were two men of equal fortune to spend their revenue, the one chiefly in the one way, the other in the other, the magnificence of the person whose expense had been chiefly in durable commodities would be continually increasing every day's expense, contributing something to support and heighten the effect of that of the following day, and that of the other, on the contrary, would be no greater at the end of the period than at the beginning. You know, this can easily be made an example of in basic arithmetic using integers, right? You start off with a with a hundred, and if every day you do a plus one, then the next day, of course, what do you have? 101, and on and on and on, right? You can so you have 200 after 100 days. But if you're the person who keeps spending money in a minus one way and things that don't last and are not durable, then eventually you're going to get your ass down to zero. Continuing, the former two would, at the end of the period, be richer, be the richer man of the two. He would have a stock of goods of some kind or other, which, though it might not be worth all that it cost, would always be worth something. No trace or vestige of the expense of the latter would remain, and the effects of ten or twenty years' profusion would be as completely annihilated as if they had never existed. As the one mode of expense is more favorable than the other to the opulence of an individual, so it is likewise to that of a nation. The houses, the furniture, the clothing of the rich in a little time become useful to the inferior and middling ranks of people. They are able to purchase them when their superiors grow weary of them, secondhand clothing stores, and the general accommodation of the whole people is thus gradually improved when this mode of expense becomes universal among men of fortune. What did he just say? They're able to purchase them with their, when their own superiors go weary of them, and the general accommodation of the whole people is thus gradually improved when this mode of expense becomes universal among men of fortune. He's saying that if people who were rich actually recycled and reused more, their clothing and things like that amongst each other or, and going to thrift stores and own that, that the fortune of the whole place would be built up. Adam Smith is, say what you want about him. This shit's genius right here. So, as the mode of one expense is more favorable than the other to the opulence of an individual, so it is likewise to that of a nation. The houses, furniture, clothing of the rich in a little time become useful to the inferior and middle ranks of people. I know. It sounds like he's putting stuff down, but just take the information, right? And the general accommodation of the whole people is thus gradually improved when this mode of expense becomes universal among men of fortune. In countries which have long been rich, you will frequently find the inferior ranks of people in possession both of houses and furniture perfectly good and entire, but made for their, but of which neither one could have been built nor the other one have been made for their use. What was formerly a seat of the family of Seymour is now an inn upon the Bath Road. The marriage bed of James I of Great Britain, which his queen bought with her from Denmark as a present fit for a sovereign to make to a sovereign, was a few years ago the ornament of an alehouse in Dunfermline. In some ancient cities, which either have been long stationary or have gone somewhat to decay, you will sometimes scarce find a single house which would have been built for its present inhabitants. 
If you go into those houses too, you will frequently find many excellent, though antiquated pieces of furniture, which are still very fit for use. That's because, you know, they made things to last back then a little bit more. Y'all heard of uh, planned obsolescence? Look it up. Uh, if you go into those houses too, you will frequently find many excellent, uh, though antiquated pieces of furniture, which are still very fit for use and which could as, as little have been made for them. Noble palaces, magnificent villas, great collections of books, statues, pictures. And by the way, y'all are never going to get my books from me until I die. Um, if you go into those houses, too, you'll frequently find many excellent, though antiquated pieces of furniture, which are still very fit for use and which could, as little have been made for them. Noble palaces, magnificent villas, great collections of books, statues, pictures, and other curiosities are frequently both an ornament and an honor not only to the neighborhood, but to the whole country to which they belong. Versailles is an ornament and honor to France, Stowe and Wilton to England. Italy still continues to command some sort of veneration by the number of monuments of this kind which it possesses. Tower of Pisa, anyone? Though the wealth which produced them has decayed, and though the genius which plans them seems to be extinguished, perhaps not from having the same employment. The expense, too which is laid out in durable commodities, is favorable not only to accumulation, but to frugality. If a person should at any time exceed in it, he can easily reform without exposing himself to the censure of the public. To reduce very much the number of his servants, to reform his table from great profusion to great frugality, to lay down his equipage after he has once set it up, are changes which cannot escape the observation of his neighbors, and which are supposed to imply some acknowledgment of preceding bad conduct. Few, therefore, of those who have once been so unfortunate as to launch out too far into this sort of expense have afterwards the courage to reform, till ruin and bankruptcy oblige them. But if a person has, at any time, been at too great an expense in building, in furniture, in books, or pictures, no imprudence can be inferred from his changing his conduct. These are things in which further expense is frequently rendered unnecessary by former expense, and when a person stops short, he appears to do so, not because he has exceeded his fortune, but because he has satisfied his fancy. The expense, besides, that is laid out in durable commodities gives maintenance, commonly to a greater number of people than that which is employed in the most profuse hospitality. Of two or three hundred weight of provisions, which may sometimes be served up at a great festival, one half, perhaps, is thrown to the dunghill, and there is always a great deal wasted and abused. Again, efficiency, right? Like supermarkets throw out so much fucking food every day. Um, it's just thrown to the dunghill. Uh, wasted and abused. But if the expense of this entertainment had been employed in setting to work masons, carpenters, upholsters, mechanics, etc., a quantity of provisions of equal value would have been distributed among a still greater number of people who had have bought them in pennyworths and pound weights and not have lost or thrown away a single ounce of them. In the one way, besides, this expense maintains productive in the other unproductive hands. In the one way, therefore, it increases. In the other, it does not increase. The exchangeable value of the annual produce of the land and the labor of the country. I would not, however, by all this be understood to mean that the one species of expense always betokens a more liberal or generous spirit than the other. 
When a man of fortune spends his revenue chiefly in hospitality, he shares the greater part of it with his friends and companions. But when he employs it in purchasing such durable commodities, he often spends the whole upon his own person and gives nothing to anybody without an equivalent. The latter species of expense, therefore, especially when directed towards frivolous objects, the little ornaments of dress and furniture, jewels, trinkets, gewgaws, frequently indicates not only a trifling, but a base and selfish disposition. All I mean is that the one sort of expense, as it always occasions some accumulation of valuable commodities, as it is more favorable to private frugality and consequently to the increase of the public capital, and as it maintains, maintains productive rather than unproductive hands, conduces more than the other to the growth of public opulence. Basically, it's fair in that. He's not saying that uh, one is right or wrong. It's like, hey, he's lavishing it on his friends, but he's still saying it's some silver shit. All right, that's it. I'm done. What is the time on this? Oh, good. So I'm just under two hours on... Uh, damn, it took that long. On... Uh, Colin, Wisdom, and what's the time on? Uh, yes! All right. You've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War Accumulation, presented by Hakeem Ali Bogus Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Colin, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Unique Equilibrium. Thanks for hanging out or passing through and stopping a spell. Taylor Made, Truly Julie, Greg's Take, Jenny Hatch. Uh, what's up, Jenny? Thanks for calling in a little bit earlier, too. Marcy Ann, Joshua Blackman, Wandering Fool, what's up, Sicily? Uh, John Batesville Jr., Martin Garcia, Roy, a Western philosopher, Eric Peterson, Daily Shift, Christopher Birkenbein, what's up, man? Again, we got to catch up soon. Jonathan Foster, Andrew Johnson, Terry, Penny Frampton, and Levi. Appreciate you all, but I got to go. Until next time.